friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston, coming to you from North of America. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer and master of tiny instruments, Alison Cameron. Her compositions have been played all over the world, and in Toronto, she performs frequently as an improviser in groups such as Curl and No Angels Dancing. A chat with Alison Cameron, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode 8 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choice as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session, where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. For this episode, I visited Alison Cameron in her home in Toronto, which happens to be less than half a block from my own apartment. As a quick disclaimer, my mobile recording rig was barely up to the challenge of this interview, so even though I was so close to home, there are a few sound issues throughout that I hope you can forgive and forget as they pop up. I'm banking on you, dear listener, agreeing with me that Allison's wit and wisdom transcend such distractions. Allison's music is informed by her deep studies of 20th century avant-garde and experimental music. A piano player by training, Allison has, over the last 20 years or so, developed a compelling performance practice built around radios, contact microphones, tiny amplifiers, and other sound-generating objects. I met Allison in 2003 when we shared a class at York University, and we got to know each other better as I kept seeing her at the same concerts to which I was going. Before long, I was going out to watch her perform improvised sets in both regular and ad hoc groups, and for the longest time, I assumed that free improv was her main thing. It was quite a few years later when I realized that I had only half the picture here, and that Allison is an internationally recognized composer of luminous and consistently surprising chamber music. In fact, Allison had only just begun to improvise publicly when I was listening to her in the early 2000s. Allison's formal music studies plugged her directly into the 20th century experimental and electronic music tradition of John Cage, Stockhausen, and Louis Andreessen, but there are also plenty of sounds drawn from pop, folk, and drone music in her work. You can hear a wide range of influences in the examples she chose to play for us. In the early 2010s, Allison and I became neighbors, so I often have the privilege of chatting with her about her music on the sidewalk. The conversation you're about to hear is a continuation and an expansion of those roadside chats. To get into it, as we like to do here on Northern Static, we'll start the show with a bit of Allison's music and then get to our discussion. Here's a piece called Gossamer Bit.
Alison Cameron. Yes. Composer, master of tiny instruments, and a fantastic neighbor. <laughs> Welcome to Northern Static. Thank you. I'm happy to be statically here. We've known each other for a number of years and play together a little bit. Uh, but let's talk about the past for a minute. When did you start composing and what did you hear that got you thinking about writing your own thing? Uh, well, I was uh, 15 when I started. Well, actually, I don't know if you... Well, I guess it may be earlier because I was in a rock band when I was 13 and 14. Oh. And, I, and I wrote some really horrible rock songs. What were you playing? Keyboards. I was playing electric piano in a little band we had at the high school I was in. Had some very uh, talented musicians there, and I was able to join in with them, and uh, we did a couple of gigs. Yeah, that was fun. You know, just at other schools kind of thing. Playing original tunes right away? Well, we we each had our own. We each, each of us had a, I think three of the four of us had an original tune. And um, I didn't write words back then, so I just, I wrote this song, and the singer who in the band wrote the words, and uh, then we had a drummer who was a very talented guy, he could play all kinds of instruments, and he wrote a song. He probably had more songs, actually, now that I think of it. And then um, Tracy, the singer, also wrote a song as well. Wow. So. Uh, and what was informing that music that made it? Oh, to... it was just all the sappy pop we were listening to in the 70s, you know, like, we even played, we played Chicago, you know. Right. What is that, 25 or 64? Yeah, so, um, you know, those kind of things. Right. And my and my first pop song was the pathetic, you know, descending bass, you know, that... Dum, 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 dum. Nice. Yeah. Sort of 25 or 64 style. Everybody has to do that baseline, <laughs> right? You know? You know, at that point, uh, well, still always in rock music, the notion of writing one's own, one's own music was um, part of the genre. Yeah, I think it just... I, no, I was a classically trained pianist. And um, I started playing piano when I was... Uh, I, I took lessons from the time I was six on and classical piano. and uh, But, you know, you're always listening to pop at the same time right so the classical music and then the pop music and go to classical concerts and i couldn't go to rock concerts until i was 12 right but i did when i was 12 and 13 what was your first one i think actually i think i might have been 13 not 12 that's right we wanted to go to elton john when i was 12 but my dad wouldn't let us yeah he's it's very dangerous music yeah yeah i do remember various concerts like i went to see nazareth and um, I went to see Queen with Thin Lizzy backing them up. Uh, I was a big Queen fan. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all my brothers wanted to go see Led Zeppelin. And I had a chance to go see Led Zeppelin. And I didn't go because, you know, it's the whole thing like you hate what your brothers do. They hate what you do kind of thing. So I feel very uh, stupid about that. But, you know, I saw Hart and Supertramp and all the people who were big back then. And uh, and was this in Edmonton? No, in, in Vancouver. In Vancouver. Yeah. So anyway, in addition to that, I went to see Arthur Rubinstein. Uh, you know, I went to the ballet, I went to the symphony, you know, that kind of thing. My mom took me in any case. So they're sort of parallel things. But, you know, when you're playing classical music and you're playing rock, uh, there's such a difference in... Like, classical music was always stressful, you got to do it right. Yeah, and there's lots of people watching your every, like, you know, move. 
Whereas in rock music, I felt like you could really be, you could just be yourself. And it was fun. You know, it was, it was easy to play and it was fun. I also played drums when I was a kid. And, uh, John Carpenter style. Yeah. And my brothers and I had a rock band with my cousin. Anyway, it was just part of the whole thing. But I didn't actually get into uh, sort of classical type composition until I was, until I was 15. I went to a high school uh, where there was a composer teaching music, and he introduced us to the 20th century repertoire, or actually the whole repertoire of music history from Gregorian chant all the way up to, like, 1975. So it was pretty uh, miraculous. You draw a line there around classical composition. What does that mean to you when you say that? Around classical composition or classical yeah. performance? Or? Uh, composition. Yeah. Like... You said you didn't get into classical composition until... Yeah, no. Like, so what, what, yeah. what? how do you make that distinction? Oh, I see. No, what I meant is classical music uh, forms or thinking about that. So when I was writing pop music, I was thinking about how do I write a pop song, you know? I wasn't thinking about writing a fugue or a, you know, a, a two-part invention or a, you know, sonata. Mm. I was writing a, a tune. Um, so I guess that's... Does that answer your question? Yeah, so yeah. just the, the, the kind of standard forms of the yeah. of, of the music. Yeah, but then I heard Stravinsky, and Stravinsky really blew my mind, and because it, he he seemed to integrate those two things, the kind of ex- really raw expression of pop with classical forms, and that's when I decided I wanted to be a composer. Aaron Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. What piece? Right of Spring. The, the heavy metal. Of, the, he- uh, the heavy metal. The riotous uh, heavy metal one. So many people have been influenced by that work. It's kind of astonishing. Just like I said, the rhythms, the rhythms were really uh, amazing and the tonality. So it was, it, it really came together for me in that piece. I just thought, I want to write music like this. And it wasn't pop music and I guess it was classical music. Uh, yes, it is classical music. It was ballet music. But I just really identified with his kind of way of thinking about his aesthetic, especially like Sarinsky is a brilliant, he's brilliant at rhythmic uh, writing in his work and you know I think that just really it was very strong and just kind of really hit me mm-hmm. but also that kind of polytonality where it was, wasn't was really one key or another but um, but you could still your ear would still be tuned to it so you could you could make your own relationships with it and it wouldn't it wasn't like you know listening to uh, Schoenberg or you know something that had no kind of uh, purp- purposeful uh, tonal tendencies. It was, it was uh, tonal, but not pop music. So somehow it just—I don't know—it just had a real meaning for me. Like it seemed like a, a very meaningful somehow and very creative. So I just kind of thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah, it's interesting how for so many people, as you said, that the rite of spring seems to be a bit of a gateway drug into the notion of composing something, mm-hmm. and. 
and maybe it is is the rhythms because it's so much more direct rhythmically than than Mozart or Beethoven or oh yeah I mean I liked uh, and I still like Beethoven and Chopin and you know some Brahms and you know different different composers from that time but especially like Beethoven and and Chopin's piano stuff I think is amazing but you know I guess it was just yeah the the visceralness of that music like it really it really grabs you in a in a unique kind of way from the Stravinsky inspiration did you try to write music like that well I also uh heard Bartok and I like Bartok mm -hmm. and so I think the first like the first thing I actually the first composition I guess I wrote was um a piano solo I did I was actually 17 and um, I performed it at, at my high school. Whatever. So you wrote it and played it yourself? Yeah, concert finale. And it was definitely Bartok and Stravinsky inspired. <laughs> right. You know, I, I had a sort of similar trajectory myself. For Bartok, it was, it was the rhythms, yeah. too. Also, I think the um, the tonality, the way that he was dealing with, uh, in a way, it's kind of polytonal. But I liked that he would use major seconds uh, dyads all the time, and I thought that was really nice and an interesting thing to do. With again, it kind of bends your ear, but it doesn't like destroy it. You know, it's 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 nice in a way. So I mean, that was uh, that was the inspiration, I guess. And I also had a when I was uh, very young, like. I think just after I got out of high school, I had a private composition teacher, uh, Joan Hansen, who was another BC composer. And I studied a bit with her, and she was also really into Bartok and stuff. So, But anyway, yeah, so I had uh, a bit of that. I had this listening experience of hearing all this music, like we heard Stockhausen, Ilhan, Mimaruglu, uh, all kinds of electronic music, because um, my composition teacher, Lloyd Burrett, was... Uh, very much into electronic music, and um, just in did, Vancouver, so people there would be concerts of this music in North Vancouver. I actually, he never talked about concerts of his music. Um, he was also a big musical fan, so one of the big projects I did in um, in high school, he had just been to London one summer, went to see the opening premiere of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Oh, man came back and wanted me to arrange all these songs from it for the concert uh, band, the school band. As well. This is in high school. Yeah, it was it was a project, that's for sure. I don't think it was very good, but it was a project. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, they played them. They played the arrangements. So you had an encouraging band teacher. Oh yeah, I mean the guy teaching the music, Lloyd, was amazing to uh, introduce us to all this. I mean, 
there was also an electronic music course, which I didn't take, which is, I, in hindsight, wish I had, but Brian Adams took it. He was at the and same school as him. me. Yeah, he was at the same school as me uh, <laughs> three years earlier or five years earlier or something. Anyway, he's older than I am, but um, he took uh, electronic music with Lloyd. You can kind of hear that maybe on his first record. Yeah, it's maybe. Sort of weird, weird disco influence. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you maintained this kind of connection between popular music and the kind of composed side of things throughout mm. your life? I mean, I certainly... I don't know. I mean, I think um, I um, I think that the things that that influence you when when you're a listener, in any case, tend to come out in your work. So you know, I guess that would be yes. But I I can't say that I think any of my the things that I've written really sound like pop music. But there's certainly you know rhythmic stuff there that could be. I don't know. I wouldn't really analyze it that way, but. But did you did you consciously distance yourself from from pop music and in, no. in your studies? No, I think um, what what happened was is I just got really interested in in composition and in writing music. And uh, when you're writing it uh, down, you know this instead of playing it, uh, it's a different process. And so I just got very interested in that that aspect like that discipline and i think that t that took me away from the uh the pop the pop kind of stuff so the discipline of, of notating specifically well also listening to more contemporary music or not just contemporary music but western art music so i was listening to more western art music i was listening to more jazz i was listening i was a big jan garbrook fan had tons of records from ucm label I was just interested in other forms than, than pop. And in fact, I stopped listening to pop music. Um, I just listened to kind of things that were as far away from that as I could possibly find in some ways. And in a way, it was like a kind of match made in heaven when um, Martin and John came to UVic, John Abram, I mean. Martin Earl. Yeah, and John, because they both had amazing record collections of incredibly alternative music. And they shared that. And... Um, I just, I was just like a kid in a candy store with all that stuff. It was just amazing to get to know this kind of repertoire and, um, you know, out jazz. Like I hadn't really, I was a big blues fan when I was young. Like I loved Bessie Smith and um, old blues, but I, um, I didn't, uh, and that came, you know, when I was sort of in my early 20s, I guess. But then I just, I heard so much. You know, and I, I love Billie Holiday, and I was never a big Ella Fitzgerald fan. Um, something not raw enough for me somehow, uh, although she's incredible, obviously. But um, it wasn't until I heard the kind of, you know, myriad of things that can happen in creative music in the world that it really opened my my ears to everything. And I just, I just became a really kind of devout listener to tons of different stuff and I would go to the Uvic library and listen to tons of you know if I was writing a woodwind quintet for example I would just go and listen to all the woodwind quintets and of every composer it didn't matter who you know um but I guess also when you're going into a school of music studying composition you're going to be inundated in that classical tradition is that Uvic were you yeah studying? yeah so at that point I guess my influence was European art music and then all this kind of alternative stuff from wherever, you know, like all over the place. 
from there, like, you're getting into more experimental stuff around? Yeah, I mean, I guess I had this, like, really kind of passion about listening to stuff, and I was um, really influenced. I mean, after Stravinsky, the next couple of pieces that really knocked my socks off were uh, Louis Andreessen and John Cage. You know, they were just really huge pieces for me when I was... I don't know, 22 or something. teacher at the time, Michael Longton, who was trying to teach me more about kind of form and uh, different ways of approaching form in, in contemporary music. And um, he was good. He was very, uh, yeah, I don't know, I would say honest <laughs> mm. um, and critical in a good way. Um, not demeaning, but, you know. And then I had Rudolph for the last two years I was there. And Is that Rudolph? Uh, Kamarov's, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just had certain ideas that I was able to kind of express. There was no, um, Rudolph was not the kind of teacher that uh, he was really interested in his students' ideas, not kind of trying to teach his way of composing, which is the traditional way of doing things. And he was, he was brilliant at that. I mean, he just, you know, whatever ideas we had, he just really supported and... Uh, even if if they seemed like crazy, you know, to uh, somebody. So so that was a really good kind of teacher for me because I had ideas, um, and I was just kind of getting them out. And so you were you writing notated compositions? Yeah. I didn't do anything that was uh, instructional or improvisatory mm-hmm. when I was uh, an undergrad. I, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But you did come into that. Yeah, I mean, I we, we played a lot of it. You know, we, we had all had to play as well. We all had to perform. Hmm. Uh, so we had sort of minors and various instruments. Mine was piano. But we also had to play in a new music ensemble called Sonic Labs. So we played a lot of repertoire like Gavin Breyers and, you know, Cage and all kinds of scores that were not uh, traditionally notated. And I also got involved in electronic music at that point. So there was no score for that. Right. So right. Was, um was just kind of planning and then putting it together. Well, what, Rick, what kind of technology were you using? Uh, magnetic tape, which was a really phenomenal thing to work with. Yeah. And um, and I, <laughs> I can see why you know, it's gone the way of the dodo, but it's a great uh, medium to work in, uh, because you can really formalize things with this physical medium. You know, it's it's a very, uh, kind of ready-made kind of way to make forms by being able to chop up and do things with the tape you know mm. so I uh, missed that I got to do a bit more when I went to the Hague but um, something I wish I'd had more kind of time for I guess because when we were students we also had to make very uh, proper copies of our scores and um, right. and it was very time consuming 
we had to write everything out uh, with kind of perfect notational adherences and skills and um, I wasn't the neatest uh, writer so and if I was writing a big piece like my grad piece I had to actually hire somebody to help me because I couldn't get it all done but yeah it was uh, it was a lot of work doing those scores so they made like they, that was part of the discipline of yeah writing mm -hmm. things out yeah neatly yeah doing your proper final score yeah with all the proper things in the right places notation right. skills basically which nobody seems to have anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, if it wasn't for Finale, I'd never yeah. have it. Yeah, really? Uh, there would yeah. be a right note played in my music because my handwriting is so terrible. Oh, yeah. Well, I write like a three-year-old with a broken hand. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. But you uh, know how to write properly, though, right? You know how to write. Well, yeah, I yeah. guess I understand the mechanics, but it looks really bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know mine looked terrible, too. I mean, I, I had a heck of a time. So, you know, you'd be penciling these things out, and we had this special paper, which was actually called Swiss paper because it was made in Switzerland, where they had little boxes and you could line everything up mm -hmm. and uh, you do everything in pencil and then you'd go over it final and, and ink mm -hmm. and then uh, hand it in kind of thing. And do you still, for your pieces now, are you, do you use computer notation or still by hand? When I'm doing the some of the work, I use, I use some written stuff and I use some uh, notated stuff, uh, sorry, computer notated stuff. And obviously the final thing is in the computer because it's, you can just punch parts out. Uh, but the actual discipline of making sure everything's correct is still the same. You know, you still have to go through every single every single detail and make sure that you've got all the things lined up properly, the proper expressions in the right places, and, and that it's legible, you know. So it's, um, that's, that's the same, but it's, it's just on a computer instead of a, by hand. Right. And, you, and you always miss stuff. That's, mm -hmm. Tell me about... Um like, do you use any other music production stuff when you're composing now? Well, actually, for a while, I was, like, um, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or something, I used this um, software called M, and it was, like, my friend John was using it, John Abram, and he sort of taught me a little bit about how to use it, because it, um, it would do these funny things, like generate certain things, and, and then you could work with that. So I was using a bit of that in some of my scores for just working with material. But now, no, I just... Well, actually, there's one thing uh, that I have used. I haven't for a while, but... Um, and Martin uses this all the time. It's the Infinity series. Um, it's a series that one of my, I guess, idols growing up, Per Norgard, is a Danish composer, and I actually got to study with him in Europe when I went there. He kind of... I don't know if you want to say invented. He says he discovered it. So it was like, more like a mathematician discovering something. He discovered this series which he called the Infinity Series, so it's a recursive uh, series where basically you get um, a string of pitches which uh, kind of have a repetitive form but not in a predictable way. So it's an interesting thing to work with. You can use it in any way you want, obviously. Uh, he had his own way of using it, but it was uh, something that a lot of us got into at UVic uh, because one of, our, one of the grad students there was really interested in it, so he... He kind of showed us how it worked. And then Stephen, in his brilliance, made a computer program that just generated it. So you can put in a bunch of pitches and you'll get an infinity series out of it. Stephen Parkinson. Stephen Parkinson. Yeah, he perfected it. So you studied with this person who came up with this. So, mm -hmm. um, so you ended up spending some time in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, I was there for a couple of years. And Paranagard I met uh, in Utrecht, actually. He was doing some work there and I... Well, I know what happened. I wrote to him. I wrote him a letter. 
because he was in Copenhagen and I had a a Danish friend that I was studying with. We were both studying with Louis together, Louis Andreessen. And um, he said he could kind of, you know, introduce us or, you know. And so I sent him a letter, that's right, with my, my work and <laughs> everything. And, you know, my work was like, I don't know, infantile compared to his. Um, but he was so generous, you know, so incredibly giving and respectful of this kind of quirky music I had done. And um, he was really, you know, interested in meeting me and we we met and I went to a bunch of his rehearsals when I was working on his pieces. And yeah, it was really cool. It was very cool. Uh, well, and then... What, what was it about his music then? Uh, well, I think it was mostly his stuff from, from around the late 60s, early 70s that I found really amazing. Um, he wrote a piece called uh, Voyage into the Golden Screen. Uh, for symphony and it was about um you know it was his first work with this after discovering or inventing whatever you want to call it the infinity series mm -hmm. and he also was using it was a big deal at that time or was starting to become a big deal for composers to use proportions that were uh relative to the, the golden section you know mm -hmm. the golden section so um and this piece is just an amazing piece of music but the first movement is uh is incredible and then the second movement is basically like kind of writing out of the infinity series Um, even though, like, by the time I met him, he was, you know, way into some other stuff. Um, uh, he had stopped kind of writing that kind of thing. But um, it was interesting just to kind of hang out and talk to him about these things and, um, you know, just engage with him about music because he was just, he's just a brilliant, brilliant person, a brilliant man and a brilliant composer. I don't like all of his work, but I, I don't have to, I think. The things that I like are amazing, but he was just, he's, or he still is, he's still alive. I think one of the most gifted composers I'd ever met at the time, for sure, and probably still is. But yeah, his, but his ideas about work weren't just, um, you know, about the music. It was, you know, he brought science into his work and uh, mathematics and everything. Like, just, I couldn't really sometimes grasp the way he was thinking about things, certainly not at the time. But it was good. It was great. It was it was uh, so fun to be at these rehearsals with him, and he was so kind. And he invited me back to Copenhagen, and when I went, he in, he introduced me to all these composers from the Danish avant-garde, uh, which was a super amazing thing. Because some of them, I I was also very, you know, uh, loved their music, and it was it was just a real, you know, incredible thing to happen to a like 24-year-old, right? Really great experience. Yeah, yeah. And I still think about you know meeting him, and I, I I always want to write to him because I you know I'm always getting old, and I'm always I'm worried about these people. Like last year, I went back to Victoria, partly just to see Rudolph, because he's getting older now, you know, and you don't know how much longer people are going to be around, and I still want to I still want to have some shared memories with them. So, so you got into working with improvisation. 
as well, which you currently still do. Um, where did that come from and how does that sort of square with the more formalist composing? Uh, well, I, I guess it sort of came out of uh, work I was starting to do when I moved, after I moved here, actually. Um, because the only improvising I'd done was as a, as a pop or rock musician. Um, I, I didn't, I hadn't done any really, well, actually, that's not true. I did improvise when I was, when I was a, a teenager, actually, too. Um, I, I improvised on the piano quite a bit, actually. And I didn't, I never think about it because it was just something I would sit down and just play the instrument. You know when you do that? You just sit down and play your instrument, not really thinking about anything. But actually thinking about it more formally within a, a context of, you know, a composition, a formal composition. I only mean that by form composition, not a formal, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? <laughs> Was uh, when I got more interested in Christian Wolf's music. And um, also was listening to um, and interested in um, more out jazz, so uh, John Zorn's work particularly. Morris and Martin Altona in Holland. Also, kind of stretching the boundaries of composed and improvised music, uh, or putting them together, or whatever you want to call that. I don't know what you call it. And that was interesting for me uh, because I was using a lot of more instructional things in my compositions. So I was writing music lines and harmonies, or whatever, but I, instead of putting dynamics, I would be putting instructions, or I would be mm -hmm. saying, play this way or play that way. So that kind of morphed into doing um, eventually more, uh, well, actually didn't really morph into anything until until I wrote for Martin Alton Ensemble. I did a couple of pieces for them. Oh, well, you were in Holland? No, um, after. Uh, that was really like the sort of tipping point for me because they're an incredible, or they were an incredible ensemble. They're still all great musicians, but they really embraced this kind of, um, you know how Dutch musicians are, right? They seem to be able to do anything, and they can do anything. They can read, they can improvise, they can play noodles around everybody, um, it seems. And um, so they're just, the skill level was amazing because it didn't matter what, like I had given them this really kind of simple stuff, but with lots of instructions, and they really just made it this piece of music that was both what I wanted and what they were interested in playing. And, and it was kind of like 
this kind of miracle of sort of things happening in a way. But the sort of, I thought, a really great scenario for, for music making where you have people who understand what you want, but they're also given things that lots of room, you know. And um, mind you, you know, it's specific, right? It's not do anything, just, you know, do things within this structure. And they just did it brilliantly. And I, I felt really uh, gratified that I had that relationship with them, that we could trust each other to do that. It was a really great experience. And that happened here in Toronto? No, it was in, in Holland. Yeah. I did a couple of pieces for them there. Mm. And then they did a kind of a concert of my stuff. Uh, I guess it was around 2000, 2001, right after I had started actually playing, uh, like performing improvised music, which was... Oh, you hadn't performed before that? Not improvised music, no. Oh. I was scared to death. Oh, when we met, you were just starting to perform. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know it was that recent. Yep, yeah, uh, only really since 2000. Yeah. yeah. So you were primarily composing for other people before then? And yeah, and well, I had, I had, I also performed, like, I performed written music, right? Like, I performed other people's music, uh -huh. other people's composed music. So, uh, because I'm a classically trained pianist or whatever, and also percussionist, actually, I I did both of those things. I conducted, I, I ran an ensemble, um, you know, did various things within that context. Uh, what led you to starting to perform improvised concerts? Martin. <laughs> right. I, um, Damn him. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it at all. And uh, he booked me in the rat drifting with uh, Ryan and somebody else. I think Ryan Steven. Driver? Ryan and Steven, yeah. And, um, and I was, like, terrified. Uh, but, you know, I brought my little radio and some contact mics and honey tones, and the rest is history. <laughs> uh, From my perspective, that's a significant part of what you do. Well, it, it was really always about making small noises, and then, and then it kind of grew out of that, I guess. I wasn't really interested in doing things that other people did well. So, for example, I wasn't going to start playing bass or trombone or trumpet or guitar, you know. I mean, because, um, you know, lots of people do that really well. Um, I was interested in sort of really finding textures with found sounds and uh, what could I make that, you know, that was uh, interesting sonically, uh, that wasn't, uh, that was just, you know, from these kind of amplified acoustic things or you know, something in conjunction with electronic keyboard, like this little, I mean, I, I did play keyboard, so I did stick with that, I guess, but um, I didn't, at, at first, I was always just had these small amplified sounds. Hmm. And it was usually very quiet. Tiny instruments. Mm-hmm, tiny instruments. Hmm. And so, I mean, that's that's a different way of thinking about improvised music. I mean, a lot of people don't start improvised music that way. I mean, people who are... Uh, like yourself and many others, uh, they're trained, uh, trained, skilled in their instruments and and um, trained in jazz or various uh, kinds of music, and then they uh, they also improvise, and and that's a different thing. Like you know, I'm not Ken Aldcroft, or I'm not you know you or you know any anybody who we really Rob or or um, Paul. You know, I I really try to. Um, not do that. So. Yeah, because a lot of time you're playing things that aren't conventionally 
considered instruments. That's like right. Radios. Yeah. <laughs> and microphones. <laughs> microphones, even the little honey tones themselves. Um, yeah, it's very experimental, and it's really kind of more um, trying to find something through a task almost. It's very anti-performer, I guess I would say. Anti, not anti-performer, but anti... Um, anti-virtuosity. Anti-virtuosity, yeah. Anti-skill, I suppose. Hmm. But you can also develop a skill uh, doing that. You know, like you develop a different skill doing that. And, uh, you know, there's tons of people who make uh, noise uh, improv now who are very skilled at it. So it's uh, it's kind of like a whole other world, I guess. But uh, you you seem to be balancing that around continuing to write notated music for other people to play. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I still so like I, I guess I hadn't realized that the how recent the idea of yourself as a performer is. Yeah. I mean, I never um, when I was studying um, when I was training as a classical pianist, I never liked performing. Um, I didn't like performing until uh, well, I, when I was running ensembles, it was more like a job that I had to do. So I did my job. But when um, when I first started improvising, I was like massively terrified of you know listening to myself or any of that kind of stuff. And I suddenly understood like why some performers never listen to their own, to their own <laughs> recordings, you know. And I thought, well, that's that's why they don't. <laughs> Because to me, it was like a no-brainer. You should always listen to your recordings, right? I mean, but no, no, there's lots of reasons not to. So anyway, the, the, I, got, I did get over that, and now I, I enjoy performing. But it's kind of uh, because I've made a, you know, a history with people here, and I, I like you know, playing with people who I, who I now know. And, right, so uh, collaborative element yeah, to it. Or? Yeah, there's a lot more of that. And, and it's just, you know, like... With Curl, was Curl was a really great thing. That's your band with the with, Robert Side and Jermaine Liu? Yeah, um, because we, um, when we started, like I didn't, I just asked, I just invited them to play at one of these Marsupial Monday things that I had at the Transac. And, um, you know, it was, it was good right from the start. You know, it was kind of weird. And then it just, it just seems to have, you know, never, like, we've always had a good time doing it, and we we always enjoy playing with it, and it seems like we've gotten better, although I can't really tell. <laughs> I think we have. I mean, certainly from the recording we made, we did, uh, but we don't play very much, so um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but, um, but there are two people who I really love playing with, and uh, I think they're, you know, part of me playing with people like that is also I'm really in awe of both of them, you know, because they're both incredible musicians. And, um, yeah, they're more on the side of, uh, sort of traditional instruments and, yeah. and, and skill on those instruments. Well, I mean, they seem to have done it all, right. You know, like the, you know, um, but they've done it in a way that they can still approach. Um, it's not just about their skill, but it's about the joy of sort of sound. Mm. And I think that's the thing that we, we all have in common. We love, the kind of experimentation in sound, and um, and I think that's what makes it work. So, and that's been a, like a really great. I mean, I love our our group. We just have a very intermittent sort of process, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is fine. You know, everybody's busy, and you know, I'm happy for everybody. But you know, everybody's got to do their thing. Um, I'd like to get into listen to some music, but maybe you could tell me a bit about your basic composition process when you're when you're working on something when you're 
in that frame of mind of life, how do you do it? Uh, well, I, I generally write a lot of ideas down, uh, like just any, any time. Uh, and I keep them in a, in a book. And if I'm working on something, I'll make sure that, uh, that I have a, like a separate sort of section for that so that I can keep going back to it. And, um, really it's just about then how do you take that, those ideas and, and throw them onto, uh, onto the page. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's just really brute sort of mechanical, like you want to get stuff happening. So, you know, make some processes and get some material that you like and, and start writing some stuff out. And other times it's much more uh, kind of intuitive or freewheeling, I guess you want to say, depending on what the type of piece is or what the ensemble is or you know, what the concept is. And, and, you know, sort of with the kind of more instructional things I've done, it's been much more, it's a lot more abstract of a process. It's just thinking about giving musicians certain activities that might result in interesting sounds. Hmm. Do you have a certain time of day that you like to, you like to work? or? A... Well, no, that's my problem is I just don't, I don't have no discipline whatsoever about daytime, <coughs> nighttime. And for me, I've always been really lucky to have work. So if I didn't have work, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't work on stuff, you know, I've just always had something to work on. So, you know, it's, uh, which is great. I'm, I feel very fortunate for that. But they have projects to work on. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they've been my own projects, like uh, when I had the band, that was definitely uh, my own project. But still, I can't remember, I don't know, like, I mean, I guess the discipline kicks in more when when you are working on something uh, to a deadline or for a deadline or something like that. So I've never been not, in a way, I've never not been busy with music. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess it works, you know. It doesn't matter how you do it. You just have to do right. it, right? So, But, I mean, you know you have ideas all the time, right? You could be going to bed and have ideas or wake up at 3 and have an idea, right? And you have to have your notebook by your bed then, right? right? So. Well, I mean, I think it's what, what works for you, right? Like, um, I also think that I could, I could really benefit from more discipline. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I have been more disciplined last few years, but I just, um, you know, I, for a long time I just wasn't. So, I mean, I did the work, but I wasn't very kind of day in, day out about it. And I would have spurts, and then I would stop, and then I would have spurts, and that kind of thing. Right. Okay. Maybe you can play something. What do you uh, want to hear? What, what you think is interesting. You mean you don't have a request? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a request. I'm just playing <laughs> I was going to say play something from the uh, AC band record as, in my, as part of my preamble. Oh, yeah.
That was Mark, Mark Shorn. Yeah. I'm saying that wrong. You should say it. No, oh, it's Mark Shorn. Yeah. Mark Shorn yeah. uh, by the Allison Cameron Band. What's happening? Um, I got interested in um, this book that I have that I bought actually in uh, Nova Scotia. What? Which um, has um, traditional Highland classical Pibroch tunes, compositions, mm. most of them anonymous. But the main thing about this book is not just the tunes, but the fact that it goes into depth about the ornamentation styles. One of the styles of ornamentation is actually called Cameron style of ornamentation. Oh, wow. And in Gaelic, they, Scots Gaelic, they say Chamshron. And so Mach Shorn is an anagram of Chamshron. Not a very good wow. anagram. 
so I was just kind of investigating this and I was uh, wanting to do a piece for our group. And that group was? Eric Cheneau and Stephen Parkinson on guitars. And in this case, Stephen's playing keyboard, the Yamaha DX100, classic Yamaha DX100, with a quirky sound with a little vibrato on it's, it. It's 93 better than the classic DX7. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, 93 what, we don't know. Percent? But something, yeah. Um, and then, um, actually, originally it was for two guitars and me playing organ. And then Stephen decided that it would be better for him to play it on keyboard because something about playing, not playing the ornaments properly on the guitar or something like that. It was really about the ornaments. Yes, because they're, they're difficult. And especially and in on, the book that you got with the ornaments, were they talking about fiddle music? No. Or pipe music? Pipe music. But I suppose you could, you know, you could play them on fiddle too. I mean, they don't, they do, right? They do, they share tunes with all kinds of instruments. Right. So. Uh, but these are particular uh, Pibroch compositions. So I, I wanted to do something with that. And as I mentioned, I, I uh, the thing about Pibroch compositions is they're kind of called, they're called something that's like uh, division form. So they start with a melody and then the melody kind of gets um, divided into these little bits that gradually, gradually become more and more about just the ornaments themselves and what they're, what they're ornamenting. Hmm. So the melody morphs into these just really elaborate ornamentation to specific pitches, and then at the end of the composition you hear the melody again. And the skill in the player is about how they can negotiate those ornaments. Uh, with this piece, um, I kind of used some of those ornaments, not the more complicated ones, but um, some of them, well, they're complicated on guitar, let's put it that way. They're very difficult to play on guitar. In fact, uh, I don't know how Eric did it, and I don't know if I can get any other guitar player to play like that. <laughs> but he um, he did it, and uh, it was quite amazing what he, you know, it's kind of a feat, I guess. I mean, it's, it's a drone piece too, right? So, the, But the idea was just to sort of turn the drone thing on its head and have the drone be in the upper part, not in the lower part. And, mm. and I was just going to accompany with... Um, I have an electric organ, which is a Korg CX-3, which mimics, sometimes it has this way of mimicking Hammond B3 with the Leslie effect and stuff like mm. that. And, and so I was, I was going to uh, color the sound with my harmonizing and um, using these effects over... It was supposed to be kind of a background to uh, the more melodic part. And um, essentially what happened is it got... Yeah, I don't know. It just it just started to become more more of a focus, I guess. And so as the uh, the other keyboard and guitar part got more static, the organ part got more more movement, I guess. And um, instead of having a melodic reprise, I just stopped the composition with the ornaments. So from the listener's perspective, what what would you what should the listener be attending to? Um, well, I think I think things go in and out of focus with it, um, because you you can start listening to it and be focused on one part, like the melodic part or the guitar part, um, or even the organ part, and then your focus will switch to other parts as the as the piece goes on. I think. Yeah. So it starts off with the melody, and then it just becomes more and more about uh, negotiating these ornaments for the guitar player. Yeah. And Stephen and Eric coordinating their parts because um, it is hard to play. It's a difficult piece to play, uh, not for me. 
Because <laughs> I just get to improvise. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's good to write the easiest parts for yourself. Yeah. You know, as a composer. Yeah, make everybody else work, yeah, make man. make everybody else work. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I did find it problematic that I improvised the part because um, I do want to have a written organ part, and so now I'm going to have to listen to this and try and try to notate it. Okay, so you were happy with the part that you played, and you'd like to fix that part of it. Well, I don't, but I think it would be good to do. By fix, I mean not pair. Yeah. I mean yeah. a fix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mm. think, I think there should be something written. So. Okay. Well, that was Mark, so Mark Shorn. Yeah. Amazing. It was a treat to hear. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a piece that you could, it could be really annoying, or it, it could just kind of find its way into you, and you kind of go, wow, you know. It, it, I think it, becomes, it can become mesmerizing, and that's what I like about it. Yeah. A lot of drum music. Could fit under that <laughs> description yeah. of yeah. either being annoying or uh, yeah. or, or or I mean I think it has a bit into it. a bit more of an edge than than most drone music I yeah. think but yeah yeah that was not my first thought mm. that this is a drone mm. piece but yeah. but when you mentioned that yes well essentially it is I mean yeah. it doesn't really change harmony I mean it does change harmony but it always has a oh yeah I guess it does change harmony doesn't it? <laughs> at the end it changes harmony well maybe uh, anyway whatever you know yeah. what I mean yeah. It's static. It's very static. Yeah. yeah. What um, What else you got that you like uh, like us to hear? So this is a uh, a piece I did a while ago called Four Postcards. Do you know that piece? No. It's for current um, uh, okay. and cello, and it's for short movements. So this is uh, you're gonna play us four postcards. Yeah.
All right, four four postcards um, by the formed by the Thin Edge Music Collective, who are a great yes performing ensemble here yeah. in, here in Toronto. Uh, yeah, did, did, people, is that them? They um, they commissioned for you, or just something that you had them play? No, I I was commissioned by the music gallery to, to for this piece, which was premiered in two thousand seven, and I think Thin Edge played it uh, after that sometime because <laughs> I can't remember when. Uh, and then they uh, uh, asked me to do another piece for them, which I'm, I did a short piece for them, which they played last spring. And I'm working on uh, kind of enhancing it or improving it or whatever you want to call it. And they're going to play it in August. Yeah, so. Did, so did you write this piece specifically for them with, with them in mind? Their this one? No, no, it was written um, when the music gallery, uh, when John Zosky was artistic director. Oh, actually... Jim Montgomery originally commissioned this piece uh, when he was still artistic director, but it took so long for it to get the project together. It was an exchange with Quebec, and it was actually Ensemble Cat, Q-A-T, which doesn't exist anymore, that uh, they were exchanging with, and, and that was who I wrote it for. Oh, okay. But right. it was kind of a weird thing because they wanted a string quartet originally, I think. Oh, no, no, no. So this was the instrumentation. It was, it was uh, like I said, clarinet, violoncello, piano. And um, I wrote that piece, and then John Zosky phoned me and said, can you make it into a string quartet? So I wrote another version of this piece with an extra movement for a string quartet. It's different. Uh, some of the things are the same. Some of them are different, um, which, which also got premiered later on uh, for the Madawaska string quartet. So it's kind of like a commission. They got two pieces for, for that. Right. <laughs> so you so you've you've rearranged it a number of times. Just just two, yeah. So this yeah. one and then the string quartet version. So that's four postcards, and the string quartet version is five postcards. And that one, the five postcard one, I made a kind of tribute, sort of to Beethoven. Actually, it's got an actual. Quote. I mean, he needs some tributes. He's not very well. Doesn't appreciated. get tributed very much. Not, you know. He's not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doesn't quite get the no, credit. He's doesn't get. He, no, he's, he's, he's totally doing. overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but, tell me about this piece. What um... Um, I was uh, trying to think of ways of writing a different approaches to to writing, like the way that I approach writing. So, I just I just wanted to do something in kind of short concepts. I hadn't done something like this really particular thing before. That was part of it. That's why it's postcards because I just thought, okay, I'm just going to think of short concepts for each part. Uh, I knew it was going to be three or four movements, and each of them had to be distinctly different. Mm -hmm. So the first three are through composed, and the last one, um, the performers are instructed to take elements of the first three movements and make uh, and and make something out of it. And specifically, that they are to take elements from those movements, whatever they choose. They're supposed to decide on a time frame for it. So you know, whatever, one to five minutes or something like right. that, and choose whatever they want from those previous movements and then descend with whatever that material is. So whatever they choose, they have to start somewhere and it has to get lower. Mm. So that was the instructions. And then there were also a dramatic element in the piece where I said there can be a another option in this fourth movement where uh, two percussionists can um, engage in a kind of data-esque sort of theater type thing, which is... One, lighting candles and reading a book. Um, and another, oh God, I can't remember, doing something else. What is he doing? Anyway, 
the book reading goes on until they read, you know, something like 50 of the same word, like could be and. So mm. they have to read 50 ands and then they, can, then they stop and, mm. and, and it's done. What's the other percussionist doing? really bad that I can't remember my own piece, you know? It's all right, you write so much. It's easy to lose track when, you, when, you, when you're so productive, I prolific. I, I don't think I write that much. But anyway, the, you know, maybe the other percussionist just lights the candles and then blows them out. I don't know. It's something pretty simple anyway. Like I said, data-esque, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an option for that fourth movement. And, and it's the only piece I've ever done where there's a theatrical element in it like that. Hmm. So that's it. I just okay. wanted to do something different. Right. But what about, what, what about the materials that, the, that are in the movements that we just heard? Um, I guess some of, them are, some of them are taken from previous pieces of mine, also short pieces. So, for example, um, Ariel, some of the material in the very first movement, or at least some of the melodic line, is from a, a 25th anniversary piece I wrote for the Martin Alton Ensemble. Mm. And I just wanted to reuse that melodic material somehow. And then the second movement, I'd always wanted to do a piece where a group of different types of instruments were trilling together. Hmm. So it was more of a physical, kind of textural, visceral sort of impetus for that. Yeah. And then um, the third movement is actually um, an excerpt. Well, I took an excerpt from a short piano piece, again, something I wrote for a, an Eastern European collection uh, based on uh, putting together... Um, it, it was a tribute to... Schoenberg and Charles Ives' uh, anniversary of their piano pieces, certain piano pieces, and we were supposed to come up with some kind of piece. So I wrote a very short piano piece for that, and there was one part in that piano piece that I wanted to kind of use again or redevelop, and, and that's what the third movement is. And the fourth movement is, what is the fourth, the fourth movement is? It's uh, what, what right. those people come up with, and yeah. that I found really great. Yeah, that's great, because it's like you've given a whole bunch of, a lot of music leading up to that point, and then... And then they have, like, their own ideas about it, right? So yeah. the things that they choose... I'm always curious what people choose, you know? Right. And that's really interesting for me, and it's very gratifying. I find it very gratifying uh, to listen to what their input is. Yeah. Know? So, anyway. Great. There you go. Thanks for sharing yeah. those pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so winding down here, what... With all this, what, what do you think is the political or social responsibilities of the composer these days? And is it is it... Sort of different than has it changed from what we might historically think a composer is all about? Well, no, it's still about burning down churches. Burning down churches. <laughs> yeah, right. Like Norwegian style. <laughs> Got it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really, you know, I've had these discussions about whether music is political or somebody's activity is political. I mean, I think uh, anytime you get an activity where, like in composition, where for me, composition is a way of thinking about something, right? It's about your choices. So whenever something is about that, then it, you can't help but be political. It can't help but be somehow political, right? Because you're exposing your choices in, in what you decide to do in that piece of music. And what you want to do and what you don't want to do are very plain for everybody. Right. So, so you're, de you're sort of declaring something about... I think you can really so. hear, you know, you can hear people are kind of naked when their pieces are, are played, I feel. I feel like they they show a part of themselves that I find very, really uh, neat part about the whole experience of listening. But certainly, like, um, I guess it's, maybe I shouldn't say that, but like, you know, the choices that you make, like you could make choice X, Y, or Z, or you could choose 
H and B, you know? So, I mean, lots of people do X, Y, and Z, but if you choose to do H and B, you're making a very specific sort of statement in a way. You're saying, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do this. So I think that that becomes, that, that becomes very, uh, very obvious when, you're, when your music's performed. Whether it's performed well or not well is a whole other thing, but uh, the fact of the matter is your stuff is, gets heard in whatever form, and, and there is your way of thinking right before everybody. And I, I really uh, I like that about comp composing, composition. I like that about listening. Um, you know, it's an interesting part of the whole creative process. I like that about, in your music, I like that, uh, listening to how you make decisions, you know, like how you've, what you've decided to do in your pieces is, I find, very interesting. You know, right, yeah. For example. No, I guess that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. We're hearing what people decide to do, what we yeah. all yeah. decide to do. And, and it's, and, and whether you and want it to be, be a, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and in some ways you're always, it's always somehow, you know, like I said, music is a way of thinking about things. It's not just you know, it's an activity that we do, but it's also kind of, I'm not saying it's about communication, I'm just saying it's about the way that you think about things, and sometimes that, for me, that gets exposed when you hear a piece of music. Amazing. That seems like a great place to leave it for now. Good. Alison Cameron, thanks so much for joining us here, uh, or I guess I've joined you because we were in your house. Right yes. here. Uh, but I didn't have to walk very far to get here. <laughs> So and you don't have to walk very far to, I don't have to, work. to get home. Thankfully, yeah. I don't have to walk very far yeah. to get home. And Which it's uh, what, a, what a privilege that I get to walk several meters to talk to great Canadian composers. Right, it's what a, a privilege treat. to live around the corner from Pete Johnson. You're too kind. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank see you, you again. Pete. Yeah, no, thanks. It's fun. Thank All right. You. Bye. That's the show, friends. You can find more of Allison's music on her website, allisoncameron.com. The content and quality of this show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. I did have some welcome editing help on this episode from Josh Kaplan. Thanks, Josh. And thank you for listening. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this episode. More importantly, tell your friends to have a listen and maybe rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about me on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, or on my website, PeteJohnstonMusic.com. For some reason, I'm not on any other social media platform, so I'm counting on you modern people to help spread the word about the show. To close it out, here's a piece by the improv supergroup Curl, which features Jermaine Liu on percussion, Nicole Rompersad on trumpet, and Allison Cameron on various sound-generating objects. This piece is called, cleverly, All Is On. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for episode 9, where I talk to drummer and composer Nick Frazier. Bye for now.
I'm 